Amen. What a privilege to be able to sing uh, praises to our Lord and Savior. How about that uh, mighty fortress? Dorian, hammering away on that piano. That's what I like to see. I love it. Yes. All right. If you can uh, open up your Bibles with me to the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, we'll continue our worship of God this morning by the reading of his word, and we will continue our look into this marvelous testimony as Chris said, for the last time until next September, Lord willing. So, Acts chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 20. This is God's word. And he entered the synagogue, that's Paul, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had, an evil, had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked, wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those, <coughs> excuse me, of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Lord, you are a mighty fortress, and it is a joy to be able to come and extol your name along with these men and women of Ephesus who recognized true authority, true power. That's what we do this morning. We pray that you would change our hearts through this text, a sobering text, but we pray that you would speak to us, be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. I just love that uh, hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I've, I mentioned this in our study of the book of Mark a couple of years ago, but that hymn has been called The Battle Cry of the Reformation. It was written during a time which saw the vigorous defense of the authority of Scripture, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sanctity of the Lord's Supper, all of which had been diminished and redefined by the Roman Catholic Church in terms of both meaning and significance. However, the song's meaning goes much deeper than just a battle cry against Rome and her false teachings. It was written during a time when the Great Plague was sweeping all throughout Europe and right into Martin Luther's home in 1527. The Black Death, which was rapidly approaching Wittenberg, uh, caused many people to flee, and that's actually pronounced Wittenberg, uh, but not Martin Luther. He did not flee. Instead, he remained to minister to his victims, including one that would be born to he and his wife, uh, Katerina. Katerina, who would write, The good Lord gave me a little girl, sweet little Elizabeth. I am happy and grateful to the Lord. Here the plague is dead and buried. However, it seems as if the terrible scourge had marked the child even before she was born. After eight months, the sweet little Elizabeth said goodbye to her father and her mother to go to Christ. 
passing through death into life. In addition to this, Luther had various ailments, multiple battles with trials and temptations, bouts of depression. He had been entrenched in the spiritual battle with Rome for over a decade. He had seen a tremendous amount of suffering being, being inflicted upon the people at the hands of those who were trying so desperately to cling on to power within the church. Now he had witnessed repeated cases of those closest to him uh, desperately clinging to their earthly life, including his very own child. The effects of sin were glaringly obvious, and the consequences of the curse surrounded him on every side, and so he turned to the Word of God. He immersed himself, he saturated himself in God's holy word, in the Psalms in particular. When he came to Psalm 46, he penned the words to this magnificent hymn, words of comfort, words of encouragement, a balm to the weary soul, the eternal souls of believers who face tremendous suffering in this temporary world. Words which were not only sung by martyrs who had marched to their death after refusing to buy into the lie of human tradition exalted over truth, but words that were sung by men who were losing their wives, women who were losing their husbands and both their children, along with many others they had grown to love in this life. Listen now. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. The connections to Psalm 46 are clear. God is our refuge and our strength. The Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth, is with us. Our God is a fortress. The God of Jacob is a fortress in times of trouble. He's a very present help in times of trouble. Luther then went on to identify a key contributor to our trouble. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. Armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. He attributes much of the suffering in this world, much of the worldwide agony to this ancient foe, to the father of lies, to the tempter, the accuser, the murderer, God's adversary, Satan himself. And he says, there's no mere man on this earth who can go toe-to-toe with him. There's nobody who is his equal. Meaning, Luther acknowledged his environment and the truth of his environment and that Satan was not just God's adversary, but his adversary as well. For Luther belonged to God, and he had the Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of him, the, the Spirit whom Satan hates, along with his band of fallen angels, who, again, Luther recognized surrounded him on all sides. This demonic host who Long to see him doubt the love of his Lord, to doubt the promises of God in times of trouble. So he wrote, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Though this world with devils filled. Devils, plural, filled. Let me ask you a, a question as we dive into this very sobering text here. Do you acknowledge the same truth about your environment, about your surroundings, that this is a world with devils filled? I've asked this before. I'll ask it again. Do you acknowledge the truth about what is really going on around you all day and all night in this life, in this world, in this country, in this city, even in this building right here and right now, that there's this war being waged all around us. That you have a very real enemy who, see, who seeks to snatch the words that you're going to hear this morning right out of your heart like a bird snatches seed off a beaten path. Do you recognize that? That, that we, even us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against 
the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you believe that? Or are we just playing church? That's what Paul told the church in Ephesus anyhow, the same city where our text takes place this morning. He says, they were in a world with devils filled. Yet, that they were to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, that they were to, individually speaking, put on the whole armor of God, that they may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Hopefully, we're all here with the armor of God. We're an army. That's the basis for our text this morning. As we see some grim realities of life on a corrupted and cursed earth as these demonic powers and principalities are made manifest in the physical realm, we'll hear of our opposition, uh, some of the terrors unseen, and we'll lament over them. Okay? But we'll also take comfort in the fact that the right man is on our side if we truly belong to him. If we belong to him. What a remarkable privilege it is to rely fully on his strength, his might to conquer the enemy. He must and he will win the battle. He will. So let's start by picking up where we left off last week. Verse 9. Luke says, And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Here he is right back in the synagogues. Paul doing what Paul does, preaching the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? Well, here it refers to the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last week we heard of John the Baptist come on the scene and he was saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The kingdom is here, and the kingdom is here because the king is here. And, and they've been saying it ever since. Remember a couple of chapters ago when the religious zealots in Thessalonica were on the hunt for Paul, Luke said when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And that's right. He is king. That's what Paul's saying in the synagogue. Every king has a kingdom. The king of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe on Christ. He, he was reasoning with these Jews. He was dialoguing with these Jews. He was persuading these Jews, and he had favor with many of these Jews. Remember, they had even asked him to stick around back in chapter 18. Many of them liked to hear what Paul had to say. They liked it. Please stay. But he didn't. He left, but then he came back. Then Luke says in verse 9, some of them became stubborn, continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. And he withdrew, <coughs> he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him Reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, Luke says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. As in any place where the truth of God's word is being faithfully proclaimed, the dividers will arise. The slanders, the gossips, the backbiters, the false accu accusers, the liars will arise in the name of their king, seek to bring dissension to the body of Christ, which is exactly what Paul would go on to tell the elders of this prominent church that would be established in this very city. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Draw away the disciples after them. This will happen. It always happens to some degree. Two years later, Paul, uh, two years, Luke says, Paul stayed there teaching every day in the hall of a local instructor named Tyrannus, which interestingly means tyrant, leading us to uh, ponder who had the better name, Tyrannus or Apollos. 
the tyrant or the destroyer? I'd like to meet the moms who agreed to name their boys Tyrant and the Destroyer and shake their hands. <laughs> pretty bold. Think about it, though. Two years for Paul? This is an incredible amount of time to spend in one place where he wasn't forced to stay, but it was necessary. Why? Well, look, look what Luke says at the end of verse 10. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So by Paul's speaking day in and day out, 365 days per year for at least two years, one Greek manuscript says from 11 o'clock a.m. to 4, PM, uh, 4 o'clock p.m. in this hall during the heat of the day, people hear. Uh, Jews and Greeks, they hear and they believe. And it was a major trade route. You could get to almost anywhere from Ephesus. Uh, They take the same message that Paul has to the rest of the province, the rest of the region. See if you recognize the churches that were formed, thought to have been formed during this time, okay? Colossae, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. These are the churches referenced in uh, the Revelation to John, chapters 2 and 3. Hierapolis was another one. Which means what? Here's what it means. Amidst all the slander, against all the backbiting, in spite of a city filled with liars, who, again, are among the worst people on earth because you can never trust them no matter what they say, it was a city full of wolves. In this city full of devils, in this city with devils filled, Christ must, Christ has, And Christ will continue to win the battle. The body they may kill, lies and gossip they may spill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His his word prevails no matter what may come against it. It always prevails. We'll see it at the end of this text. It prevails. It grows. And God testified to this reality, didn't he? In those days, before the New Testament was completed, he verified the, uh, the message of Paul and the apostles and some closest to the apostles by performing signs and wonders. That's what he did here. Verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs, aprons that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick. Their diseases left them. The evil spirits came out of them. Now look again at that text there. Was Paul doing the miracles? Was he conjuring up enough supernatural ability within himself to perform miracles? No. Luke says who was doing the miracles. God was doing the extraordinary through Paul. Not ordinary miracles, extraordinary miracles through Paul. He said, oh, this is a superstitious people here in Ephesus. They are superstitious. You wouldn't believe it. But that's okay. I can work through superstition. And he says, you want to see proof of what Paul's saying to me? Grab one of his sweaty tent-making headbands. Let's grab one of his rags, sweat rags. Take him over there to such and such a place. Heal such and such a person. And that's what happens. Now again, do you, do you think the power was in the perspiration? The actual piece of clothing? Do you think that's what healed people? Was, it, was the power of God in the, the fabric or the object? Of course not. Of course it wasn't. God was just saying, I can do anything I want by any means I want. And in this case, some people were healed of diseases. Evil spirits came out of them. Two separate events here. God was performing miracles through Paul to affirm the message of Paul in a time that required such signs and wonders. No more today, though. No more. In other words, Daystar and TBN, I'm not going to send you any money. No matter how many Hebrew prayer shawls you dangle in front of me that have been anointed by the televangelist, I'm not going to do it. So leave me alone. Let's look at verses. You want a Hebrew prayer shawl? We can anoint it. This is a look at verses 13 through 17 for a bit. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, okay? 
this is a kind of a fascinating section that uh, again shows for us the reality of these evil forces in this world. Luke writes, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, this is the only place in the whole of the New Testament where this word exorcism or exorcist is mentioned, by the way. And no, it's describing some non-believing Jewish men. Don't, Don't miss that. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over <coughs> those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So again, they weren't even claiming to believe in Jesus themselves. They had just heard of, or maybe even seen, God working through Paul by these displays of signs and wonders even casting out demons. And they said to themselves, oh man, that'd be some nice power to have. Think of the accolades we'd have if, if we could, we'd receive, if we could do some of those things. Luke says in verse 14, there were seven of these guys in particular. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now we don't know anything else about this guy named Sceva other than he had seven sons. He's apparently a high priest, but we don't see that anywhere in the historical records. We do know he had these seven sons, though. And and these guys said, let's try our hand at this. Let's see if we have the power, and let's toss this name of Jesus fellow in there in case it's proven that we don't. So they go up to some guy. They know he has a demon on the inside of him, an evil spirit, and they say, I adjure you by Jesus, who Paul proclaims, trying to get him to come out. And even though I'm not applauding the demon here, I do take a bit of joy in his response as he looks at these guys through this man and says, (coughs) Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Who are you? In other words, what are you, what are you guys supposed to be? The Magnificent Seven? What are you doing here? You guys are way out of your element here. You don't know anything about the cosmic powers of this present darkness or the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You don't know what's really going on here. Because you don't know the one who possesses true authority. They knew it. And the demons knew, and the demons know who possesses true authority, don't they? He says, Jesus, I know. You better believe I know Jesus. I fear Jesus. I tremble before him, and I know his servant, Paul. But just as much as the demon says that he knows Jesus, he's also telling these seven men they don't know Jesus which means he knows they don't have any power inside of them and they don't have any power over him. In other words, <coughs> these seven sons now know that the demon knows that they don't actually know this Jesus who came into the world demonstrating true authority, which means they're in a lot of trouble here. They're in a lot of trouble. Luke confirms this in verse 16. The man in whom was this evil spirit leapt out on them. He subdued them. This is one against seven. It utterly prevailed against them. It overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. The demon wasn't fooled by their religious facade or their tossing the name of Jesus around like he was some lucky rabbit's foot. He knew they were insincere. Oh, demons know who is real and who is fake. Just like the Lord knows who is real and who is fake. Folks may be able, may be able to uh, fool each other, but they don't fool the Lord. And in this case, they don't fool demons. You know what this reminds me of? Catholic priests and their so-called exorcists, neither of which know the real Jesus, They know a false Jesus who isn't capable of a full atonement. They know of a false Jesus who needs mommy's mediatorial help to intercede for those who belong to him. They know and worship a false Jesus who is more dependent upon exalted, venerated, and canonized men and women to accomplish his sovereign purposes than by his own omnipotent power. They don't know Jesus, so when they come upon someone like this, they depend on necklaces and stale water and candles and trinkets and rituals, on sayings and phrases and hours-long intense exercising of their victims. Well, 
when all the while the, the true power against these demonic forces lies in people's sincere faith in the gospel of Christ and is subsequent indwelling them with his Holy Spirit. A spirit who, if I may speak so boldly, the Catholic priests and their so-called exorcists don't know of either. Okay, this is why they're, they're able to continue to lead billions astray day after day after day. They can do it. It reminds me of the Pentecostals, of the hyper-charismatics. This past week, I read a story about a, a California mother who has been charged over the uh, death of her three-year-old daughter who last year died from asphyxiation after having an exorcism performed on her by her pastor grandfather at the family's tiny Pentecostal church in San Jose. The reason? She cried a lot. Claudia, the girl's mother, is accused of holding the girl's neck, sticking her finger repeatedly down her throat to try to get her to throw up the demon, squeezing her neck, depriving her of food for the whole 12-hour ordeal, while Pastor Rene Huezo and the girl's uncle held her down until they killed her. That's not casting out demons. That's not deliverance. That's not an exorcism or whatever other false title they want to put on it. That's cold-blooded murder. They murdered that little girl. Three grown men and women. And they did it in the name of Jesus Christ. But not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Oh no. The Jesus Christ of their own making crafted together in their own depraved imaginations or the imaginations of demonic false teachers that came before them. And you know as well as I do that the stories like these are all too common. And what they do is they demonstrate for us who actually has the demon. Not the three-year-old little girl who cries sometimes as three-year-old little girls are tend to do. I trust that this sweet Airely is in the presence of her Lord. I'm grateful to hear that the murderers are where they belong. I know they will face a greater punishment unless they truly repent and believe in the gospel. All that to say, many people out there who claim to have power over demons really have no power at all. If they persist, they will only end up getting hurt like the seven sons of Sceva, or much, much worse, they will hurt somebody else. They don't have any authority at, all, authority at all because they neither know the Lord Jesus Christ nor do they submit to him as Lord. Brothers and sisters, demons are real. Demons are real. How do we know they're real? Because the Bible says they're real. The Bible says they're real. And that's the ultimate source of truth in this fallen, corrupted, and cursed world. Demon possession or affliction is mentioned approximately 100 times in the Bible, excuse me, 120 times in the Bible in some form or fashion. 104 of those being mentioned in the New Testament alone. Any good systematic theology will tell you that they are referred to as demons. Uh, harmful spirits, lying spirits, unclean spirits, destroying spirits, <clears throat> even destroying angels. If you ever want to get a visual of the spiritual war that is being waged all around you, read Daniel chapter uh, 10 through 12, where he speaks of the angel, uh, archangel Michael, battling against the prince of Persia, which is the name for the demonic powers over Persia and Greece. The Bible, it has a lot to say about demons. And who ultimately has authority over demons? We repeatedly hear about them in the New Testament. Jesus casting evil spirits out of little girls and little boys and Jewish men in the synagogues, Gentile men in the tombs, prostitutes, various other enslaved souls. Demons are ruthless and demons are real because the Bible says they are real. Okay, but what we're talking about 2,500 years ago with Daniel... I think King Saul, right, had a demon. Uh, that was, what, 3,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago? 
These are all ancient manifestations, right? Just during Bible times, right? Well, I think Luther would say, nah, they're here in 1527 as well. What about today? Do we still deal with demons today? Absolutely. They're not hard to find. Drive down to Capitol Hill this afternoon, look at some of the abortion protesters if you want to see some demonic activity. I drove down there last week and I thought, oh, this will be good content for the upcoming demon sermon. (laughs) They even caught one on film shouting, ladies, if you get pregnant, run on down to the abortion clinic, have that little blank sucked right out of you. I'm not going to say the word from the pulpit. She can read. Now, what in the world are they so passionate about? What is it that they want to see upheld? I'll tell you what it is. It's protecting their man-given right to murder other humans. The most vulnerable humans. And because we're living in Romans 1, thus far, at least in this state, they can do it. On April 4th, 2022, just a month ago, Governor Jared Polis, Colorado governor, uh, signed into law House Bill 1279, the Reproductive Health Equity Act. The new statute allows for abortion at any point of a pregnancy, right up to delivery. No questions asked. The draconian law even went so far as to strip preborn babies of all human rights. This puts Colorado's disregard for preborn life on par with North Korea and China. Quote, it's wicked, it's evil, and it's now law in the centennial state. It's law. These children, these precious ones, are a gift from the Lord, which is why these people hate them so much, including our governor because they hate the God who gave them. That's just one example of uh, modern-day demonic activity in one subsection in which they happen to be thriving right now. But it's all around us, everywhere. And, And the Bible is clear. As things go from bad to worse, which they are and which they will, These demonic manifestations will continue to the end of the world as we know it, all the way up through the tribulation period. Demons are real, my friends. Demons are powerful. From biblical doctrine, again, any good systematic will have several examples there. Uh, Demons have the power to indwell humans and animals. Mark 5, 1 through 16. Physically afflict and terrorize humans, Acts 19, we just read. Initiate false worship, 1 Corinthians 10. Promote false doctrines, 1 Timothy 4. Perform false signs and wonders, 2 Thessalonians, Revelation 16. Deceive prophets, whole 400 prophets, and 1 Kings 22 had lying spirits. Even encourage idolatry, Deuteronomy 32. They have tremendous power. But they operate under authority. Just like Satan, they are subservient, meaning as we see in the case of Job, for example, among other places, God can somehow allow both Satan and demons to accomplish his divine purposes without violating his perfectly holy and righteous character. This is evident when God walked the earth in human form when he came down to the earth that he spoke into existence. Whenever demons would see Christ, they would shriek. They would panic. They would writhe in fear. Demons know and fear Christ. They would say, we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. Or, you are the Son of God. We know you. You are Jesus, son of the most high God. Then they would say, are you going to destroy us? Will you torment us, Jesus, before the time? Which means there's coming a time where he will torment them, and they know it. Little different response than the sons of Sceva got, right? Well, what's the difference? Jesus had authority, okay? Luke chapter 8 tells of a certain demon, uh, 
when he says this. He says, when Jesus had stepped down on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, plural. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. They must not like clothes. I don't know. He had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. That's his response. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized the man. He was being kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds, be driven by the demon into the desert. See, that's human logic. Human reasoning, human power and authority. Let's chain the man down. Let's hold the man down. Let's beat him up. Let's strangle her. Stick our fingers down her mouth. Don't feed her for 12 hours. Torture the man and the demon will flee. They may do that in the charismatic church, in the Catholic church, but that's not what Jesus did. That's not Jesus' method. and It wasn't Paul's method either. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to de- depart into the abyss. He had that authority. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs. The herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Then all the townsfolk came out and they said, gee, thanks a lot. You can leave now. See, it was okay when the individual man was suffering. They, they just chained him up. But they didn't want some Jewish Messiah coming in messing with their pigs or their way of life. Sounds familiar to me. Demons are real. Demons are powerful. Demons both know and fear Christ because he is the Lord. He is the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth. He is the only one, the only one who has true authority over them, which isn't good news for unbelievers. Because like these seven sons of Sceva, again, they don't know Christ, so they don't have the spirit of Christ dwelling on the inside of them. So what is the relationship between demons and the unbeliever? Well, unbelievers are completely open to, completely vulnerable to, completely susceptible to demonic possession, to literally being indwelled with and controlled by demons, which honestly wouldn't be that far of a leap from their natural state. As Paul writes again to the church at Ephesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. How did you once walk? You are following the course of this world. You are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Meaning, if you're an unbeliever here today, you hear my voice right now, you are already under Satan's influence, which means you have no power at all to resist him or his fallen angels. So yeah, unbelievers can easily be possessed at any time. And they can easily be controlled by demonic forces. But if you keep reading, you'll see that Paul says we were all at one time in this vulnerable position. Paul himself was in this position. The believers at Ephesus was in this position. All believers since you were in that position. Me, I was in that position. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We're no better than that gal you saw in the still. We've just been changed by grace. Because, Paul says, but... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How do you do that? Ephesians chapter 1. In him also, that is Christ, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So then, what is the relationship between demons and the believer? Can demons possess true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. No. Because we already have the fullness of Christ dwelling in us bodily. There's no room for them. We already have his spirit dwelling on the inside of us who can never be taken away and he doesn't share residency with anyone. Certainly not forces of evil. In other words, we've got a big old no occupancy sign shining right from our hearts. Illuminated by the very Holy Spirit of God himself. There's no biblical record of a true believer in the Old Testament or the New Testament being possessed or indwelled with a demonic spirit, okay? They've been antagonized, they've been oppressed, but not indwelled and controlled by a demonic spirit. It can't be. It's impossible. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? Answer, none. You're not welcome here. What accord has Christ with Belial? Answer, none. No occupancy. Now, it's important to note, while we can't be possessed or controlled by demons, we can be tempted, distracted, swayed, afflicted by demons. Demonized would be the appropriate word there. We can certainly be demonically oppressed, even antagonized to some extent. So what do we do when this happens to us? What should we do? Well, I think we remember what Luther said. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. What truth is that? I mean, what should we do if we're being oppressed? Or or maybe somebody comes in here who is possessed. What should we do then? Should we talk to the demon? Should we yell at the demon? Should we try to cast out through long hours, long sessions in the fireside room this demon? Should we start chanting bizarre chants and performing bizarre rituals? Should we start abusing our own people in the name of Christ? No, no. Should we start abusing the most vulnerable people among us so we can pretend we have some power we don't have? That's exactly what Satan would want us to do. But let his followers participate in such perversions. Okay? So then how do we do our, how, how do, we do our part in delivering people from demonic oppression and even possession? We share the gospel with them. We beg the Lord to save their souls if if he so wills. We tell them of the gospel of grace. It says Jesus came into this evil and corrupt world system to set sinners like them, like us, free from both their own sin nature and from demonic oppression and possession. He destroyed the works of the devil. And he came in through his virgin birth. We tell them about the subsequent Uh, the sacrificial death and his burial and and the triumphant resurrection from the dead. We, We tell them about his ascending to the right hand of the Father from where he sent his spirit to indwell those who belong to him, whose spirit who seals us, who protects us, who shields us and gives us the ability to preach the word, the gospel of truth, which is the power of God to unto salvation for all who would believe. That's our association with demons. We, we tell people the word of God and then we depend on the spirit of God to do the delivering. That's it. That's it. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins Turn to your creator by faith alone and Christ alone. Turn to the one who possesses ultimate authority 
and power over this present darkness, regardless of what you've done in this life. What sins you've committed, even the folks we referenced earlier who are literally killing their own children <coughs> and cheering about it. Regardless of if you're a woman who has been fooled by that, there is forgiveness for you at the cross. There's mercy for you. And a host of other things that we've all participated in. Again, we are no better. No better. The difference is, by his grace, he's saved us and delivered us, allowed us the ability to hear his word. And that can be true for you. You can be forgiven. You can be washed clean. You can be made to be as white as snow. You can be made to be alive together with Christ who will bring you into eternal glory and bliss if you would just switch your allegiance and bend the knee to Christ as king instead of continuing to bow down to Satan and his evil world system. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, and I know many of you are, don't talk to demons. Should go without saying. Don't talk to Satan. Resist him, but don't engage him. Don't try to fight with him. How do we resist him? Well, J.C. Ryle says the chief weapon we ought to use in resisting Satan is the Bible. Three times the great enemy offered temptations to our Lord. Three times his offer was refused with a text of Scripture as the reason it is written. The scripture which says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. He said, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. It's not for us, okay? The, the only offensive weapon or, or the only offensive piece of armor is the Word of God. Everything else is defensive. It, in other words, it's not exorcisms. It's not a repeated rebuking and threatening of Satan and his demons. Even down on Capitol Hill, as tempting as it is. It's not for us. Stand firm on the word. Luke finishes off this narrative in verse 17 where he says, this testimony of the seven streaking sons of Sceva spread like wildfire. It became known to all, you got that, no. It became known to all the residents of Ephesus. <laughs> I always like that little giggle. I always, okay. It became known to all the, ref, all the residents of Ephesus. How'd you like to have that reputation, no? <laughs> From the highest of religious highs to the lowest of societal lows. As they run naked. Uh, Luke says, nobody's laughing here. It's not laughter, but fear fell upon them all. All the residents were in fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, revered, magnified, praised, honored, which is exactly how it should be and exactly how it will be at the end of time. How do we know this? Because he alone possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. Because God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But some, uh, for some, it will be too late. It will be too late. You can do it now. I, I implore you to do so this morning. Come to him by grace alone, through faith alone. Just like some at Ephesus did, right? There were new believers in the city. There were new converts to Christ. New converts who recognized what this meant for their former way of life, didn't they? These, these Ephesian Christians living in a city full of cult prostitution with idol worship, dark arts, magic, pagan philosophy. And some folks said, man, I'm not messing around with that stuff anymore. I'm not doing that. Look at verse 17. Also, many of those who were believers came confessing and divulging their practices 
A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them at it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Ah, yes, a good old-fashioned Christian book burning. <laughs> right in front of everyone. Now, I don't think we need to be burning books in the parking lot, frankly, or cell phones or CDs or whatever. But I appreciate the principle. I think it's a good takeaway. Let's do an inventory of our lives, of our hearts. May we always forsake that which is dark, things that we can open ourselves up to. Some music, entertainment, certainly pornography, um, other, me- other means. We're opening ourselves up to something that isn't in accord with our new life in Christ. And we need to sincerely ask ourselves if we're willing to take such drastic m- measures to separate ourselves from the stuff that this culture thrives on. They love it. These new believers in Ephesus uh, did just that. Praise the Lord. Finally, we'll close here. Uh, Look with me at verse 20. Luke says, So, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And there it is again. The power of the word prevails again. It always does. The word, the gospel, was growing. It was spreading, just as it did after the persecution in Acts chapter 6, where the religious leaders of Israel wanted to kill these guys, just like it did after the persecution in chapter 12, where King Herod literally killed James, had Peter thrown into prison, just as it does today. Regardless of what this wicked, devil-filled world tries to throw its way. So stand firm on the foundation of God's word, my brothers and sisters both the written word and the word made flesh. Do you know him? I want you to leave this place this morning asking if the right man is on your side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same. He must and he will win the battle. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's have Noel come up and the music team. Dorian, close us out. And that piano. And we will... uh,